as we move from thinking about the doctrine of Scripture, we move now to the doctrine um, of God. And so as we think about what the Scriptures teach, the, the shorter catechism actually asks us this question, in question or the larger catechism in question six. It says, what do the Scriptures make known of God? Uh, the Scriptures make known what God is, the person's in the Godhead and the execution of his decrees. And so when we think about what the scriptures teach, they are principally teaching who God is and the duty that he requires of man. So naturally, we move now to thinking about who God is. But it's always important to remember the question this way. We're not asking who God is, are we? We're actually asking what God is. That's the way that the, uh, the catechism puts it. Uh, what is God? And I think Danny in his prayer was alluding to this very well because it's important that we phrase the question that way. Why? Because we begin by remembering that God is not like us. Now, this was Balaam's uh, famous statement, was it? wasn't it? Uh, remember when Balak was trying to get him to curse Israel and he kept blessing them instead and the donkey is pressing him into the wall and he beats his donkey and there's that whole mockery of Balaam. Um, but at the end he said, God is not like man. He does not lie. And that's important for us to begin with, that God is a different kind of being so that we can talk about his whatness. What is he exactly? Um, we are one sort of being. God is a different sort of being. And so that's important because we can't, we can't take all of our experiences and sort of allegorize them to saying this is what God is like. I experience creation this way, and so God must experience creation in a very similar way. That's what leads us into falsehood. We are in God's likeness, but we also remember that God has attributes we will never share with Him. Even in the kingdom of heaven, maybe you'll celebrate your birthday. Maybe you'll celebrate your death day. And you'll remember that day when you transitioned even as a spirit, into God's kingdom in that way. <clears throat> Those will always be true of you. Forever and ever and ever, you will have had a birthday. God doesn't have a birthday. He is eternal. You and I will always be composite beings. You are a body and a soul. You are put together. Those two things make you up. God is a pure spirit. Nobody puts him together. He is a simple being, not made up of parts. And so, this is <clears throat> going through these attributes is going to be a little bit like having 30 minutes in a huge botanical garden. You can kind of walk through and admire the flowers and see the butterflies. Maybe you'll remember a few of the names, but you really can't go into a lot of detail on any of them. And so, I've tried to break this down so that we can really focus on a few things. But remember that we're not going to do justice to any of it. But what I hope is that I, I want to give you just a little tip uh, at the end of the sermon tonight to help you begin to meditate on who God is and sort of incorporate it into your everyday life. Okay, That's one of the things I want to try to leave you with tonight. That Jesus prayed in His high priestly prayer. Did you notice what He said? 
this is eternal life, to know you, to know you. In Exodus chapter 5, there is this sort of extraordinary moment, and I talk about it a lot because I think it really is an extraordinary moment. When Moses appeared before Pharaoh, and um, Pharaoh asked Moses a question. He says, we, came, we come in the name of Jehovah. And Pharaoh said, I don't know who, who Jehovah is. <laughs> and so the next, the, next, uh, the next seven chapters are a revelation of who Jehovah is in plague after plague after plague. And all of that happens so that at the end, we, as they come out of the Exodus, I think it's in Exodus chapter 9, that God said to, to, to Moses, he said, now, now, you tell your sons, you tell your sons what happened here. Remind them what happened so that they will know who Jehovah is. And when, when Joshua led Israel over the Jordan and they set up the stones on the other side of the Jordan, that was specifically so that when they came back down, if they took a fishing trip back down to the Jordan and they brought their sons down there and they see this heap of 12 stones sitting there etched with the name of Jehovah all over them, God said to them, when you bring your children here and they ask you why these stones are here, you tell them. It is our lifeblood to know who the true God is. And so we're going to walk through this. I'm, 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 I'm striking the third point in our out, or the fourth point. So we're going to look at this in just three points. We're going to talk about the unity of God's being, the consistency of God's being, and the knowledge of God's being. So let's let's start just where the confession of faith begins. It it begins by telling us that God is one. There is one God. In an early um, in an early Christian work called the Shepherd of Hermas. He, he says this, that first of all, and in his doctrines, he says, first of all, believe that God is one. That was the preeminent doctrine for him. It says, even he who created all things and set them in order and brought all things from non-existence into being, who comprehends all things being alone incomprehensible, Believe Him, therefore, and fear Him, and in this fear be continent. Keep these things, and thou shalt cast off all wickedness from thyself, and shalt clothe thyself with every excellence of righteousness, and shall live unto God if thou keep this commandment. You see, for, for the shepherd of Hermas, this is a very practical thing. How do we cast off fear? How do I walk in righteousness? Well, it is having an appropriate comprehension of the one true God. And that begins by remembering that He's one. But why might that be important? Well, many reasons. It's true, first of all. There's only one God. He doesn't share glory with anyone else. When He acts, when He created you, He is not acting at the behest of anyone else. He does it of His own free will. There is no coercion, no colloquium of gods that get together and say, what shall we do? But when the Scriptures say that God sits in the heavens and He does as He pleases, He is acting of His own free will. To redeem you, He is acting of His own free will. 
He is God alone. And as we gather on a Sunday morning for worship, we're not uh, rolling the dice in the narthex or lobby, if you prefer, and saying, well, who shall we magnify today? This is also important because it unifies the church, doesn't it? We all worship one God. We don't worship many gods. There's not a pantheon that we come before to try and please. We worship the one. Now, I want to make just one historical note here. We begin this way. The Westminster Confession of Faith begins uniquely because it starts with the Bible. And we remember that what we know about God, we know from Scripture. That's where we learn it. But uh, when Henry VIII divorced (coughs) Catherine of Aragon, he also divorced the Roman Catholic Church. But that left him in a little bit of a pickle because the church needed a unifying statement of faith. And so gradually in the 1500s, they developed what were called the 39 Articles. So that became the the basis for the Westminster divines when they called Parliament together. Their objective was to revise the 39 Articles and they whittled it down to 33. That became the Westminster Confession of Faith. But the first doctrine, the first point of the Church of England in the 39 Articles is this. Number one, there is but one living and true God. And that's where the Westminster Divines took their starting point from their friends in the Anglican Church. And that's why we begin there. That's where the Judaism begins also. As you, If you were a little Jewish boy, the very first memory verse that you would have stored in your heart was Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, according to Jewish theology, that one God of Israel would ultimately become the one God of the whole earth. That was God's intention for them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 and 6, we read, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols... We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. And in verse 8, 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. Your existence, this means that your existence is directed toward one being who made you. The Confession goes on to say that this one God is living and true. <clears throat> when, when the Apostle Paul went to Thessalonica and they had been converted, he says to them, you, you left dead idols and you turned to the living God. We understand this and put this forward because this one true God is interactive with, with His creation. Yes, He is transcendent. He exists outside of time and space. But He is also, as Pastor Danny said, imminent. He interacts with us. Our prayers. He hears our prayers. And He delights to illustrate that to us. He is the living and the true God. As we read in Jeremiah 10.10, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. How do we know this? At His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure 
his indignation. He is not only living and true, he is infinite in being and perfection. When Job's counselors got together and they were sitting with him around a campfire, they got a lot of things wrong. But one of the things that you can take away from Job is that when they try to describe God's being, they get many things right. Now listen to what they say in Job chapter 11, verses 7 to 9. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. And in Job 26.14, Behold, these are but the outskirts of His ways. As soon as you begin to think that you've got God figured out, you realize that you've only got a thimbleful of who He is. And how shall a whisper do we hear of Him? How small a whisper do we hear of Him? But the thunder of His power, who can understand? One of the uh, a memorable passage from uh, John Owen's work on the mortification of sin is when he notes that, that Moses' face shined when he had seen but the hind parts of God's glory. We move from considering the unity of God's being that He is, he is one God, infinite in being and perfection, the living and true God, to thinking about the consistency of, of His being. What, what kind of a being is He? And so the, the confession puts it in these terms that, that may be a little bit beyond us, but it says that He is a most pure spirit. God is a most pure spirit. Remember when um, Jesus has that moment where he went out of his way in John chapter 4 to visit with the woman by the well, the Samaritan woman. And they have this exchange in which she says, well, your people say that we have to worship at this specific place. And Jesus says in John 4.24, this important phrase, God is spirit. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. As you think about who God is, you must remember that He is a spirit. He, he doesn't have a carnal existence. He doesn't have a body. As the confession goes on, it says He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have parts. He doesn't have passions. And Thomas Watson Thinking about this, he's, he says, what do you mean when you say God is a spirit? By a spirit, I mean God is an immaterial substance of a pure, subtle, unmixed essence, not compounded of body and soul without all extension of parts. And this, this begins to introduce us to some of the maybe what we might call the strangeness of God's being. He is a most pure spirit. He cannot be contained. He is invisible, as we'll go on to say. Someone once asked me, they said, do you think it's possible to feel God? 
In other words, would it be possible to feel God brush against your skin, as it were? And as we think about this, the answer is no. Do you feel Him now? He is all around you. And so the confession goes on and it says that uh, these spiritual attributes, He is invisible. You cannot behold Him with your eyes. In fact, Paul would say that no man has ever seen God. Never. You cannot behold Him with your living eyes. He is without body, parts, or passions. And, And so let me just emphasize, why would we say this with such importance? Why is it so important to say that God does not have a body? Well, because if He had a body, someone had to create that body. Someone had to put it together. But God is uncomposed. There is no composer of God. He is the uncreated being. We sometimes refer to God as a simple being. And that doesn't mean that He's easy to understand. What we mean by the simplicity of God is He's not a composure. In, I, I teach an ethics class on, on Thursdays, and this past week we, we talked about the essential Christian ethics of love and justice. You think about Psalm 101, verse 1, where we, we sing about God's love and justice. And for you and me, we, we have to commit ourselves to being loving at times. And then we might come over here and, and our emotions change and, and so we're committed to justice and we think about justice, but it's hard, isn't it, sometimes to hold all of these qualities together to be fully loving, fully just, to be merciful, and you find yourself, don't you, failing at some of these and, and being inconsistent. But when you think of God, He's not composed of these attributes. He is all of these attributes all at once. He doesn't move between love and mercy and grace and justice and hatred. He has all of these attributes all at one time. He's not a composite being. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 to 16, this, this has a special application to the way that we worship God. When you think about Him as a spiritual being, you ought to think about how we worship Him. Listen to what he said in Deuteronomy 4, verses 15 to 16. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. Remember when Jesus said to that Samaritan woman, worship him in spirit? Well, one of the applications of that surely means that that we're not trying to get primarily an emotional response in our worship. That's not our aim. Our worship is not, if God is spirit and He doesn't have a body, then our worship of Him is not primarily aimed at, um, is not primarily aimed to the senses, but the spiritual This doesn't mean that we shouldn't have an emotional response, does it? Because the Scriptures command certain things like joy and happiness and love. But the emotions are not the direct aim. Because the emotions neither prove nor disprove the sincerity of your belonging to Christ. Sometimes your heart 
doubt. So we have spiritual worship because we are worshiping a spiritual being. One who cannot be seen. But in His incarnation, the second person of the Trinity took on flesh. Jesus said, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And I want to want to mention here and just have you think about something. We, we actually talked about this yesterday morning in our men's breakfast. The, the confession says that God is without body parts, not body parts, body part, comma, parts, comma, or passions. This may not seem important right off the bat, but what the confession is saying is that God is not an emotional being. He doesn't waver between joy and anger and wrath. He is not surprised by events and all of a sudden he just gets really angry. God is immovable. He's unchangeable. In fact, in Acts chapter 14, verse 11, when Paul and Barnabas had come to Lyconium, um, the people said, look, we have gods among us. Referring to Paul and Barnabas, and Paul responded, the God, they said, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Paul responded, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of likeness to you, of like nature with you. We bring good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You see, Paul is saying, we have a like nature with you. We are emotional, passable beings. God is not. He is constant. Because He lives outside of time, don't you see? And He has from the very beginning comprehended and decreed everything that comes to pass. When you fall down and you skin your knee, you respond with crying and pain and some other things perhaps, but God doesn't because He's not surprised. He's known all things from before the foundation of the earth. And so we continue in the confession, and it says that God in His being is immutable. Immutable. He doesn't change. Ever. 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 Remember that in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. The writer to the Hebrews wanted to emphasize this to you by saying, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yesterday, today, and forever. Scripture clearly demonstrates that God doesn't change. Think about James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Micah 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. You see, there in Micah, what the Lord is emphasizing to His people is, I am a covenant-keeping God. I have sworn, and I will do it. Why? Because my promises ultimately aren't dependent on you. My promises are dependent on me. And that's why He gives signs like the rainbow in the sky, the circumcision in the flesh, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, of baptism. You and I don't see our baptism anymore, but God will see your baptism forever. And He doesn't change. And that is what you hope in. 
That's what you see in the sacrament. This God who serves me this meal every single uh, first of every month, when He serves me that meal, He is reminding me He does not change. We also remember that God is immense. This is one that sort of always blows my mind. God cannot be contained. The fullness of the triune Godhead occupies every molecule of your body. Every atom of the universe is in Him. I was, remember, I have this vivid memory of sitting in a room when my aunt reminded all of us cousins sitting there that Jesus Christ sat in the movie theater with us. You probably had a, a faithful aunt or mother who was reminding you not to go and see certain movies. We remember when the psalmist asked, where can I go from your presence? Where? And I love when we get to the 33rd chapter of the Confession of Faith, it reminds us that the blessedness of heaven is the presence of God. And the torment of hell is the presence of God. He cannot be contained. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27 we read, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. That's Solomon and the temple. Jeremiah 23, verses 23 to 24. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? I think that's what my aunt had in mind. Declares the Lord, do I not fill, do I not fill heaven and earth? Declares the Lord. Now, to be clear, sometimes... We talk about entering the Lord's presence, don't we? And leaving the Lord's presence. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, you remember when, when Cain was cursed because, of he, because he killed his brother Abel. We read there, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Are we to, to imagine from this passage of Scripture that, that Cain found a place where God doesn't exist? And the answer is no. But sometimes the Scriptures use this language to tell us to depart from God's presence is to depart from His favor. Cain dwelt in a place of special cursing. He was out of God's favor. God is not only immense, He can't be contained in space. He's also eternal. I think this is probably one of the first things that we learn about who God is. He doesn't have a birthday. He cannot die. He never will. He has no beginning or end. In Psalm chapter 90, verse 2, we read, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is a spirit. He's invisible. He is immense. He's eternal. He does not have a body. He does not have parts. He does not have passions like you or I. And then thirdly, lastly, let's notice the knowledge of God's being. If 
One of the ways that the Westminster Confession of Faith is different than what you might read in, in the works of John Calvin or some other theologian is, is often when, when men start to write about who God is, they begin with the same topic. And they will say, God is incomprehensible. And, and the reason that they say that is, is because they're asking at the very beginning, how do we know any of this? How, this is sort of like a flea comprehending the dog upon which it rests. They are a different sort of being from one another. So we conclude tonight by remembering that although we can say many things about God, it also ought to remind us of how little we really do know. It ought to remind us how small we are. After all, compared to who God is, I'll just quote to you from Herman Bobbing. The knowledge of God is the central core dogma, the exclusive content of theology. From the start of its labors, dogmatic theology is shrouded in mystery. What he means is that we're trying to study, we're trying to comprehend the infinite with our finite minds. In everything that we do, we are studying who God is. It is shrouded in mystery. It stands before God, the incomprehensible one. And this knowledge leads to adoration and worship. To know God is to live. To know God is to live. Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One of the things that you ought to consider as you think about the doctrine of God's incomprehensibility, that he is, this is the creator-creature distinction, that He is infinite and you are finite, as we read in Isaiah chapter 55, that His ways are higher than our ways, that His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that we cannot find Him out. You cannot do an archaeological dig and find Him and understand Him. You will never grasp Him. It is like trying to rope a whirlwind. But we give ourselves to it. And as you consider it, it ought to lead you to adoration and worship. And I told you that I wanted to end by giving you a, a practical application of all of this. One of the things that ought to grip you, you think about, I'll just give you a little story. Um, when I was in third grade, um, we, when we were in grade school, we, used, we still used to celebrate, we used to have Valentine's Day, and I, I don't know if kids still are, are even allowed to exchange Valentine's cards. And that they, We used to make a little shoebox, and we'd cut the hole in the top, and you'd put your Valentine's in. Well, I wanted to give a special Valentine to this particular girl, and so I had been thinking about this for a while, and my mother actually helped me sneak in the night before, and I took a piece of chocolate and I put it in her box. And she never knew about it. I don't know how successful the whole plan was. Seems like you want them to know about it in the end. She still doesn't know. Um, but I gave a lot of thought to it. I, I considered it. You know, in those moments when you, you, you lay in bed at night and you're thinking about this, if you understand 
that God has disclosed Himself to you in nature and in His Word. He's done so that so that you will lay in bed and think about Him. He wants you to meditate on His being. He invites you to meditate on His being. To, to d- develop a deep love for Him. As the shepherd of Hermas said, this is how we drive fear away and live for the glory of God. And let me just give you one simple way to do that. In the shorter catechism, when it says, what is God? It answers by saying this. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And, and here we go. In His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. How many is that? Seven. How many days in the week are there? Seven. If you meditate on one attribute per week, one attribute per day, and give yourself to it in prayer, here's what I would encourage you to do. As you do your daily Bible reading, mark down the verses that relate to holiness, God's being, that He's infinite, immense, that He's a most pure spirit. Write those verses down. Label them that He is unchangeable uh, in His wisdom and His justice and His holiness, His goodness and truth. And then every day, you will start to develop a long list of verses that will help you to praise God for each of these attributes. And you will develop a habit of meditating on God. And you know what you'll start to meditate on? You'll start to meditate on God's being and His wisdom and His holiness, His justice, His goodness, His truth, instead of all the things that drive you crazy and make you anxious. At night, you'll begin, you'll find that you're starting to discipline your mind. Instead of thinking about the stressful things in your life, you'll say, you know what? I don't want to think about those things. I'm going to think about God's holiness. And maybe your mind will go to Isaiah 6 and how God's temple filled, or His, the train of His robe filled the temple and your heart will be caught up in love to Him. This is what Christ did. You'll find yourself growing in your spirituality. As Thomas Watson said, if you want to grow in likeness to God, who is a spirit, Grow, grow in your spirituality. Let's pray. Our Father, You are beyond finding out. And we, as we think about the fact that You've disclosed Yourself to us, We are amazed. And, and Father, we worship You for who You are. You are immense. You, you fill every atom, every molecule of all of Your creation. The, the dark matter in space, all of it exists in You. You are in all places at all times. You're a most pure spirit. Though our eyes have not seen You, we love You. And we praise You that You have disclosed Yourself, great God, in the person of Jesus Christ. We praise You that You are an unchanging God. We thank You that although so many things on this earth are untrustworthy, You are always trustworthy. You are always faithful. Every one of Your promises You fulfill 
You never break a single one of them, O oh Lord. And we praise You for that. We thank You that You, you, you always love us. And, and the, the way that You loved us yesterday is the way that You love us today is the way that You will love us tomorrow and into all eternity. That will never change in Jesus Christ. But we could go on and on, O oh Lord, in praising You for who You are. Teach us to do that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.